we're uh, using as a beginning point, kind of a golden text, Ephesians chapter 10, I'm sorry, Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 10, Paul is uh, concluding his uh, letter to the church, and he says, finally, brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Now, do you know any Christian that doesn't want that to be real in their life? Isn't that what everybody wants, is to be strong in the Lord and the power of his might? Whether they know how to or not, I mean, wouldn't that be the dream or the goal or the ultimate for every, every believer? Well, the Bible tells you how. He goes on, Paul goes on by the Spirit of God to say, put on the whole armor of God. Now, we talked uh, briefly about it. We didn't um, uh, break it apart and, uh, like uh, we certainly could, but we talked a little bit about it last uh, Sunday, or I'm sorry, last Wednesday night when we, talked to, when we introduced this subject. But every part of this piece of every piece of this armor, every part of this armor has to do with the knowledge of who you are in Christ. Something about what Jesus has done for you. So he's saying that the key to being strong in the Lord is to learn who you are in Christ and what God has done for you through the work of Jesus. Now, why is that important? Well, it's important for us to know, certainly if, if we never used it, just to know it would be helpful. But notice in verse 18, verse 18 says what we're supposed to do with this whole armor of God, praying. In other words, it's prayer armor. Now, don't get me wrong. It's not that, uh, that the armor is not good for other things. It is. But God wants you to have a successful prayer life. God didn't leave you here on the earth to just suffer through life and, and uh, suffer the consequences of uh, the law of sin and death that's still at work here in the earth and just barely make it through and, and uh, hope for the day that, that Jesus comes back and rescues you. God left you here on the earth to be an overcomer. Now, you may not feel like an overcomer, but that's why he left you here. Folks, I would submit to you that if God, who is the creator of the universe, could set things up any way that he wanted to, he could take every person to heaven just as soon as we get saved. Now, the Bible says it's better to depart and be with Christ. Paul said that. He was talking about his dilemma. Do I stay here, which is better for you, and abide in the flesh, or do I go on to be with the Lord? Which is far better. To depart and be with the Lord is far better. He didn't say a little bit better. He said far better. Well if it's far better to be with the Lord. Then why did God leave us here after we got saved? Well Jesus told us. Gave us the instruction to occupy until he comes. Now what does that mean? Does that mean suffer and tough it out? No it means be a conqueror. It means exercise dominion. It means to use the authority that we have in the name of Jesus. To do the work. The same work that Jesus did. And to accomplish the will of God here on the earth. God did not leave a people, a family down here on the earth to suffer through and barely get by and scrape and scrimp and, and, and um, experience the savages of the devil and, and all of his evil works and so forth. And then someday Jesus comes back and delivers us. Now the Bible says you've been delivered already. Well, what's going to be one of the major keys then to operating as an overcomer, an effective prayer life? I don't know how anybody could be an effective, uh, effective uh, Christian. I don't know how anybody could be an overcomer. I don't know how anybody could be a, more than a conqueror, as the Bible says we are, without having an effective prayer life. Jesus considered it to be a very, very important part of his time here on the earth. The Bible says that during Jesus' three years of ministry, there were a lot of nights that he went and, uh, and went into a mountain and prayed all night long. Now, tell me this. If Jesus was the Son of God, and he was... If Jesus had the spirit of God without measure, which means he had the unlimited potential of the power of the Holy Ghost in him and on him, and he did, why does he need to pray? Why didn't he just go out into the earth every day and just do the will of God? What does he need to pray for? 
Well, it indicates when Jesus said that the thing that mattered most to him in, the li- in this life, in this earth, was to do the will of the Father. It indicates that a prayer life is necessary to do the will of God in the earth. Which, if that's true, if our prayer life determines our effectiveness in doing the will of God in the earth, the church is in sad shape from an experience standpoint. But the Bible gives us the instruction that we need to change that. So the, this armor of God's prayer armor. It's armor that you can use in any, any and every uh, aspect of living the Christian life. But the thing that's mentioned here by the Holy Ghost about why he wants us to put on the armor of God is so we can pray. Verse 18. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit. Now, other translations say praying with all kinds of prayer, all manner of prayer. Even without other translations, you could well see that that's the case. He's talking about different kinds of prayer for the church. The prayer armor is necessary. This armor of God is necessary so that we can pray effectively. And in order to pray effectively, you're going to have to pray more than one kind of prayer. If there was not more than one kind of prayer, Paul just would have simply said, praying and making supplication in the spirit. But he didn't. He said praying with all prayer. All what, what does he mean? All prayer. He means all different kinds of prayer. So many in the church seem to have the idea that all prayer is the same. Brother Hagin used to use the example, I guess uh, somebody came up to him and said, well, pa- uh, Brother Hagin, prayer is prayer, isn't it? And he said, well, yeah, and sports is sports. But you play different sports by different rules, but they're all sports. Play baseball by a different set of rules and you play football. We understand that, don't we? Well, why wouldn't we understand that prayer is governed by different rules? Yet it all falls in the different kinds of prayer is governed by different kinds of rules. Prayed according to different kinds of rules. Yet it all comes into the category of prayer. The Bible gives us several examples of different kinds of praying. Last week we looked at one. One that I consider to be one of the most important ones. Because it's, uh, it uh, overcomes some, so much wrong thinking in the church. So many people think that Jesus every time he prayed. He prayed Lord not my will but your will be done. And they seem to follow that pattern and pray that way themselves. Yet you find only one time in Jesus ministry where he prayed that. And that was in the Garden of Gethsemane. He sure didn't pray that way when he stood before Lazarus' tomb and said, Lazarus, come forth. He said, Father, I thank you that you hear me always. And you're hearing me now. Why didn't he say, Father, if it be your will, let Lazarus come forth? Now, that's one kind of prayer and is prayed under certain conditions when you consecrate yourself to the Lord. Consecrate your will to God's will. You make yourself willing and available for whatever God has. And that's exactly what Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane. Tonight I want to talk to you about a different kind of prayer. We kind of want to clear out the underbrush and then get into some of the specifics. Tonight I want to talk to you about the prayer of commitment. The prayer of commitment. Turn with me over to Ephesians chapter, I'm sorry, Philippians chapter 4 and 1 Peter chapter 5. Philippians chapter 4 and 1 Peter chapter 5. Philippians chapter 4 verse 6. Paul is writing... To the church by the Holy Ghost. I like to say it this way. The Holy Ghost said through the Apostle Paul. Be careful for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known unto God. Now notice he says be careful for nothing. Other translations said don't be anxious or fret about anything. Other translations will say things like don't worry or have have a care about anything in your life. Be careful for nothing. In other words be worry free. Be worry free. Be worry-free. Now, notice the progression that he uses. He says, be careful for nothing. Don't worry about anything. But 
Here's the contrast. In everything, by prayer and supplication, let your request be made known unto God. Notice he says worrying is a prerequisite to praying. I'm sorry, getting rid of worry is a prerequisite to praying. Do you see that? How do you do that? We're talking about the prayer of commitment or the prayer of casting your cares over on the Lord. Look at 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7. Casting all of your care over on him, for he cares for you. The Amplified is real good on this. It says, casting the whole of your care, all of your worries, all of your concerns, once and for all on him. For he careth for you affectionately and about you watchfully. Casting the whole of your care upon him. When we call it the prayer of commitment, I think it's important that we understand that we're not talking about committing yourself to God. The fact of the matter is uh, the believer cannot commit themselves to God. They can consecrate their will to to the will of God. We talked about that last Wednesday night. But you can't commit something to God when it already belongs to him. And you already belong to him. You committed yourself to him when you made Jesus the Lord of your life. So the prayer of commitment is not you committing yourself. Now the Bible says present your body a living sacrifice and so forth. And that's important for us to do. We certainly do that. But that's not committing yourself to God. We're talking about committing your cares, the cares of this life, upon God. That's what the prayer of commitment is. And notice it's a prerequisite to prayer. Look with me now to to, uh, Matthew chapter 6. Let's see what Jesus said about this thing called worry. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is, uh, this is part of the Sermon on the Mount. We'll start reading in verse, uh, well, let's start reading verse 25. Jesus said, therefore, I say unto you, take no thought for your life, what you shall eat or what you shall drink. Now, please understand he's not saying don't think about things. He's saying don't worry about things. For example, where he says, take no thought for the morrow. We have to make plans. We have to have to. Uh, uh, well, we thought about uh, tomorrow. We think about tomorrow when we make our, our church plans and and um, uh, the schedule for our services and things like that. That's thinking about tomorrow. He's talking about worrying where he says, take no thought. He doesn't mean don't make plans. He's saying, don't worry about things that are coming down the road. Take no thought for your life, what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor yet for your body, what you shall put on. Is not the life more than meat and the body more than raiment or clothing? Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are you not much better than they? Which of you, by taking thought, meaning worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? Now, folks, I don't know about you, but I'm not trying to grow any bigger. Matter of fact, I'd like to grow smaller in some ways. So that application, the way that it's translated, doesn't have a lot of meaning for me. But I want you to understand what he's saying. He's saying you can't change physical things by worry. You can't change physical things by worry. You know, it seems to me if worry, since the church seems to be so good, many Christians at least seem to be so good at worrying, if worry worked, we'd be doing great. But this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, which of you can change anything in this natural realm by worry? Worrying doesn't do anything. Somebody said worrying is like a rocking chair. It keeps you busy, but you don't get anywhere. Well, not only that, but it's destructive. It's not just time-consuming. It's destructive. 
I'll show it and prove it to you in just a minute. Which of you, by taking thought, can add one cubit to his stature or change anything in this natural life? And why take you thought for clothing or raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Verse 31, therefore, take no thought, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink? Or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do do the Gentiles seek, meaning the unsaved, For your heavenly father knoweth that you have need of all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Please notice what he's saying. He's saying seeking the kingdom of God is to get rid of, to eradicate, to destroy worry from your life. Turn with me now over to Mark chapter 4. I want you to show you, I want you to see the danger of worry. Again, it's not just something that the devil tries to distract you with. It's something he tries to detour you from the plans and blessings of God. We'll pick up with Jesus' explanation of the parable of the sower sowing the word. Jesus said in verse 13, know ye not this parable? And how then will you know all parables? Verse 14, the sower soweth the word. And these are they by the wayside where the word is sown. But when they have heard, Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. And these are they likewise which are sown on stony ground, who, when they have heard the word, immediately they receive it with gladness. And they have no root. That word root is literally the word moisture. They don't continue to water the word. They have no root or moisture in themselves. And so endure but for a time. Afterward, when affliction or persecution arises for the word's sake, immediately they are offended. So the first type of ground that he talks about, or the the stony ground that he talks about, he said these people are are run away from the things of God, even though it's the will of God for them to have the blessings that are identified. He said these people miss the blessings because they can't handle affliction or persecution. The fact that they don't water the word causes them to lose heart and to give up when things get tough and when people speak against them. Now he's talking about the second, the next type of ground, the the Seed that was sown among thorns. And these are they, verse 18, which are sown among thorns, such as hear the word. Now, what causes these people to turn loose and be unfruitful? And the cares of this world, and the deceitfulness of riches, and the lusts of other things entering in, choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. I want you to notice when he talks about the cares of the world, he's talking about things that you worry about. He can't be just talking about the circumstances of life because everybody endures and and has to deal with the circumstances of life. He's talking about your attitude toward them. He's talking about worry. Notice he says the three things that cause this type of ground, these type of people to become unproductive as far as the word is concerned. Now, the word's got power. The word of God is quick and powerful, full of life and power, sharper than any two-edged sword. It's the most powerful thing in the universe when it's put to work. Yet, in these people... Three things cause it to fail. The deceitfulness of riches, desires for other things. In other words, they, the devil distracts them either toward, the, toward money or financial things or toward other things here in the earth becoming more important to them than the things of God. And the one that he identifies first is worry, the cares of this world. 
Folks, you need to understand something. Worry is not just a bad idea. Worry is destructive. It will rob you of the things of God. I remember when I first started going to Raymond, I'd never heard anybody talk about worry. Didn't know worry is a bad thing. I, I don't know that I was particularly skilled in worry, but, you know, just like everybody else, you deal with the, the things that come to you in life. And, and uh, when you see that the problems are bigger than you, then you start questioning how we're going to make it and, and so forth. And that develops a pattern in all of us. And unless that pattern, that habit is broken, you'll continue along with that for the rest of your life. But I heard Brother Hagin say that when he got saved, he was already um, uh, uh, on the sick bed. And it was about 16 months before he received his healing. But he got saved. His uh, testimony was that uh, his heart stopped and he went to hell. This happened three times. And there was a supernatural thing that occurred. He heard a voice. He assumed it was God. It wasn't the English language that spoke, so he didn't know what was said. But when this voice was spoken three times when he was at the gates of hell, he said everything about that, the, that place just shook, and it pulled him back to his body, pulled his spirit back to his body. And the last time he came into his body, he had been crying out to God, God, I'm not supposed to be going to hell. I'm a member of the church. Well, members of the church don't go to heaven. That's not the thing that makes, it, makes a way for heaven for you, a way into heaven. Finally, he started crying out for Jesus, Lord Jesus, save me. And his voice picked it up as the spirit entered into his body. He said uh, that was April 22nd, 1933. He said from that point in time, he said, man, I've, everything changed. He says, I read the Bible. He said, I looked at the, the, just the cover on the Bible. He said, holy Bible. And he said, that blessed me. Everything started changing because now he's a new creature in Christ Jesus. And he promised the Lord. He asked, uh, asked his mom to bring him, a, uh, bring him the Bible. And because of his weakness, they brought him a little, little New Testament, you know, one of these little small things. And uh, he could handle that a little bit better. And uh, so he, he uh, took that Bible and he told the Lord. Uh, the doctor said you, you could go at any time. So he said, I thought, well, if my time's short, I better start with the New Testament rather than the Old. And so he started off in Matthew, and he said before he ever read a, a, one verse in the book of Matthew, he said to the Lord, he told the Lord, Now, Lord, I promise you, I know I'm saved, I know I'm born again, I promise you whatever I read in this book, I'll do. Well, he read through Matthew 1, Matthew 2, Matthew 3, Matthew 4, Matthew 5. Jesus is talking about blessed is he that does this, talking about the Beatitudes and so forth. Got to Matthew 6 where it says, Therefore, take no thought for your life, saying, He read through Matthew 6 and he thought to himself when he read those verses about not worrying, he thought to himself, well, how in the world is a person supposed to do that? And that was about as far as he took it. He kept on and reading chapter 7, but he said it's not a blessing anymore. Where the word was light before, now it's darkness. Reads on through chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10. Finally, he realizes, hey, something's changed. So he talks to the Lord about it. He says, Lord, what happened? I was getting so blessed just reading. And, and this was a matter of, of, a, of, well, I guess it would have been a couple of weeks by the time he got through the first 10 chapters of Matthew because he could only read for a few minutes a day. When he asked the Lord about it and said, Lord, what's going on? This, this isn't the, the same blessing it was when it was first brought to me a couple of weeks ago. He said instantly the Lord spoke to him and said, Matthew 6. He knew exactly what it was. He had made a promise to obey what the word said no matter what it said. And now here the word says not to worry, and he doesn't know how. He went through and, and made a real funny story about how his mom and his uh, grandmama were world champion warriors, and he learned from them and so forth. 
well, I'd hear these things and, and, um, uh, and I'd think, well, uh, you know, I, I don't uh, have a physical condition. You know, I'm not believing God for healing like he was. I'm not in a, on a deathbed or sickbed or whatever you want to call it. And uh, I'm not struggling with something like him. So, so I don't have that same thing to deal with. And man, all of a sudden, within a month, I had one of the biggest financial crises that I've ever faced. Now I'm faced with something that I've got to come up with more money than, than I have the ability to come up with in any job that I'm working or any prospect of any job that I could get in just a real short period of time. I mean, it was a big bill in a short time. That's not a good combination. And so I thought, what am I going to do? Well, I've been hearing Brother Hagin teach. I've been going to healing school every afternoon. I've been hearing about the prayer of faith. And I started off praying the prayer of faith. And immediately, as soon as I finished that prayer, I'm attacked with worry. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? What are you going to do? The devil started to count down. You, you know how many days you've got left before that bill's due? I found out the devil knows how to tell time really, really well. He counts well. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? What are you going to do? I'd struggle with it. I'd confess the word. I knew that's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to say what the word says. So I'd confess my God shall supply all of my needs according to his riches and glory. But it's still there. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? How are you going to come up with that money? I'd lay down at night trying to go to sleep. And he'd be staring me in the face. I'd get out, finally get off to sleep. Wake up in the middle of the night and it's like it's sitting there on my chest. What are you going to do? You know how much money that is? What are you going to do? Finally, I realized I'm going to have to act on what the Bible says. I mean, I've been trying. I've been making kind of a half-hearted effort at it. But I got out of bed in the middle of the night. The first night, I got out of bed. And I opened my Bible to First Peter chapter 5 and verse 7. Where it says, casting the whole of your care over on him. All your cares, all your worries, all your anxieties, once and for all. Now, I've been trying to do it. But it's like double stick tape, you know, double-sided tape. You try to let go of it, and then somehow or another, it's got a hold of the rest of you. Get it out of your hands, and you find out it's stuck to your pants leg. I think that's what a lot of people do with their worries. They try to get rid of them. They see, okay, this is great. I want to be worry-free. And so they try to cast those cares over on the Lord, but they never really get rid of them. It took me a good hour to get through the prayer where I had, had meditated on the Word, spoken the Word to the degree that I could finally get off to sleep. And then I woke up another couple hours after that. And I'm back in the same boat that I was in. I did it three times that night before I finally got off to sleep and got that thing off of me. Sometimes it takes a while. I don't think people understand. I don't think people understand that you stay with it until it's gone. Now we'll talk about how you know it's gone a little bit further. But the long story, uh, the short of the story is, long story short is that God met my needs. Well, I didn't have to deal with that kind of financial pressure or, or worry about finances from that point because the experience that I had was something that brought me great confidence where my own personal finances were concerned. But man, then we started the church. Dear Lord, now I don't just have to worry about my finances. I've got church finances to worry about. So we rocked along for a few years. Then the Lord told us to buy land, to put it on my heart and impressed upon me to buy land and start building. And I, I, I yet have yet to have figured it, the whole thing out. But he put me in business with some of the most dishonest people that ever walked the face of the earth. Well, you know the story. Many of you know the story. The building was halted. The construction was stopped. 
They filed suit against us. So here we are limping along trying to make it work with whatever monies we've got to continue to go forward. All the time this lawsuit's hanging over us. And then we wind up going to court, being sued for a lot of money and, and you know, that kind of stuff. Now I'm being threatened not only by the, the dishonest people that I went in business with, which, by the way, the Lord told me to pick them as contractors. I, I don't know. Maybe that's the best God's got for when it comes to contractors. I, I really don't know. But all I know is I picked the people that after praying about it, I picked the people the Lord led me to pick. And, man, it created the, the, one of the biggest problems, the biggest problem that I'd ever faced in my life up to that time. So now, not only am I facing my own personal destruction, not only am I facing the threat from the people that are trying to take away everything that God has provided for us, now I'm faced with the idea that I might be failing the people that God sent me to pastor. Now, honest to goodness, that's the biggest threat that I've ever faced. Uh, what, I mean, what I mean by that is not necessarily the money itself, but the biggest thing that I, I had to fight worry about is that I had led the people, pastored the people ineffectively, that I'd made wrong decisions that would affect people's spiritual life. Because I know what happens when a church blows up, whether it blows up because somebody gets into sexual sin or somebody steals money or, or whatever the case is. I know what happens when a church blows up. Some people never recover. Some people get scattered get mad at God or get mad at the pastor or whatever the case is, and they never recover spiritually. Well, if I do that, if my actions cause that to happen, I'm going to have to answer for that in eternity. I'm, I'm amazed at some people that take pastoring so lightly. I'm amazed at some people that come up and have the idea, well, Pastor Mike, you make it look easy, so I guess anybody can do it. Well, okay, I'm sure I'm not the best in the world at it, but I know this. I know you don't want to do it unless God told you to. Not because it's hard. If God told you to do something, it's easy. But because there's a responsibility there. The Bible talks about not even being many masters. In other words, don't even try to be somebody's teacher unless God's put you in that spot. Because teachers have the greater condemnation. Well, I don't know about you, but I'm not interested in greater condemnation. I'm not interested in any condemnation. I'd rather have a job where I can just do what, what comes naturally and everything works out here and there's no responsibility later on. That'd be my dream job. Wouldn't it be yours? But it's amazing to me how many people want to take that on themselves without any supernatural equipment. Not me. I've learned too much. And so that was one of the things that I was faced with. Not just the finances, not just the money, but the devil was on my shoulder every afternoon. And every night and every morning. How are you going to answer to God for messing up with the people like this? Well. Now I'm, I'm not only facing finances and financial trouble and financial hardship in a different manner. And at least a different measure. And so I had to deal with some of the, the, the worry concerned, you know, attached to that. But I already had some experience in that. So that wasn't as really, really as big a problem. The biggest problem I had was the responsibility that I had to the people. Boy, the devil wouldn't let up on that. I struggled with that. I wish I could say it only took me as long as it took me that first time with the finances. But it took me weeks with that one. It took me weeks. I'd get, I'd get free of it, say, Lord, this is your doing. You led me. And then all of a sudden the thought would come, yeah, what if I just missed it and he didn't really lead me and I just thought I was being led. 
So now you've got to start over and get what the Bible says about being led of the Lord. Got to go back to what I know. It, it was just one of these round-robin things that I went through again and again and again. Day after day after day. I went for about two weeks. Didn't get a good night's sleep. And that's affecting me in court and so forth. So finally, I just got to the place where we got to a weekend and I said, all right, I'm going to have to deal with this once and for all. Lord, if I've made a mistake and somebody else needs to take over, that's fine. Whatever needs to be done is fine. But bless God, I'm going to have to deal with this once and for all. I am not going to spend another week this way. So I just buckled down. I got into the place where I'd cast it over on the Lord. By the way, the word casting is the same word that you use for fishing. It's like to throw something away. I'd throw it and it'd still be stuck to me. I'd try to throw it again and it'd still be stuck to me. I'd try to throw it again and it'd still be stuck to me. And the only way to overcome that is to take the word of God and to stay in the word of God to such a degree that you know what the word says is more important and more real to you than the thoughts that are coming against your mind. I don't understand some people. They, they come to me and, and some people think that, that, uh, that worrying is a, a sign or an indication of how important they are. I remember one lady came to me one day and she said, Pastor Mike, I need you to pray for my healing. And, and not only that, but there's trouble in my family. My, my son's doing this. My daughter's doing this. The, she's going through a divorce. And I don't remember all the things, but it was big on a long list of trouble that she's in. And she said this, and she said, and I, I'm in such a mess, I'm just shaking. And she stuck her hand out and showed me. Her hand was just shaking away like that. She said, I'm, I'm just shaking. And I'm thinking to myself, lady, you think your hand shaking is some kind of sign that you're so important that the devil has unleashed hell on you. When I, in fact, the only thing that was really a sign of is that she hadn't cast her care over on the Lord. There's two things that the Bible says, in my opinion, there are several more, but there are two main things that the Bible talks about, that Jesus talked about, and that Paul tells us here by the Holy Ghost, that are, that are stumbling blocks, that are roadblocks to you getting the answer to your prayer. The first is unforgiveness, and the second is worry. Jesus said in Mark chapter 11, verse 25, and when you stand praying, forgive if you have aught against any. Paul said, be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. In other words, deal with worry first and then pray. I know, and I've learned through my experience in dealing with people, that when there is a roadblock, when somebody knows what the word says, and there is a roadblock, it's usually in one of those two areas. They're either in unforgiveness or they're hanging on to worry. Well, how do you know when you turned it loose? Did you remember over in Mar- uh, Matthew chapter 6 that we were reading? Let me turn back there so I can get the reference for you. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is talking about God will take care of you more than he takes care of the birds of the, the air, the flowers of the field. Verse 31, Jesus said, therefore, take no thought saying. Take no thought saying. How do you know you've finally gotten worry free? You're not talking about the problem anymore. I found in those two areas, unforgiveness and worry, I found people make the same excuse. And that is, they say, well, I just can't stop. Well, sure you can. You can forgive and you can stop worrying. It's not easy. Sometimes it's hard to do both. Sometimes it's just as hard to forgive as it is to stop worrying. But the Bible says you can. So either God's lying about it or you or I are lying about it. Paul said, let God be true and every man a liar. So if he said you can, then you can. I found people that want to take care, take, get rid of half of their worries 
because they're so comfortable with the habit. Brother Hagin tells the story of a lady came to him one time. And she, was, she asked him to pray, and he said, what about? And she tuned up and started bawling and squalling a little bit. And, and she said, well, she said, I need you to pray one of two things. Either that God will give me strength to carry the burdens that I'm carrying here in this life, or that he'd take about half of them away because I could handle half of them. Well, the Bible doesn't say casting half of your care over on the Lord. It says casting the whole of your care over on him. Once and for all. I found that people make excuses not only to, 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 op- to stay in unforgiveness, but also to worry. Why? Why do we do that? I guess we've all done it from some t- you know, at one time or another. But why do people do that? Why do we want to stay in unforgiveness? When we know that unforgiveness will keep our prayers from being answered, why, do we want to, why is unforgiveness more important to us than getting our answers? When we know that worrying will stop the word of God from being fruitful in our lives, why do we want to hang on to worry? How do you know you've turned loose of worry? You're not talking about it anymore. It's not affecting your eating or your sleeping. That's when you know you've cast it over on him once and for all. Well, Pastor Mike, I'm trying to. Well, then stay at it until it gets there. Stay with it until it gets there. Confess the word of God. Say what the word of God says about your situation. Well, Pastor Mike, if I don't talk about it, how are we going to know how to handle it? Listen, the only thing you need to be saying about your trouble once you identify it And pray about it. The only thing you need to talk about your trouble is what the answer is. Because you're going to have what you say. And people make all kinds of excuses. This is one of those kinds of excuses that they'll make. They'll say, well, I'm not worried about it, but I'm just concerned. Like there's supposed to be some difference there. If it means you're talking about it instead of speaking the answer, that's worry. Whatever label you want to put on it is still being careful. Casting the whole of your care over on him. Casting the whole of your care over on him. I found that there are certain places in my life, and, it, and, and you know, the Bible talks about renewing your mind to the word. The more you renew your mind to the word, the less trouble you have in some of these areas. But even if, with a new, renewed mind, you're going to hit some things that you've never experienced before, and worry is going to come back on you. You may, for example, you may cast the whole of your care over on him once and for all for one area, but you come up on a new area, you're going to have to deal with it all over again. Just like I dealt with it with finances, I had to deal with it with leading the church. I've had to deal with it with some of my loved ones, dealing with some of my loved ones. Man, that was a new thing. What a blessing that is. It's one thing when you have the responsibility and the ability to direct things yourself, but if you can't do anything about what somebody else is doing, there's plenty of worry ground on that end, isn't there? You're going to have to learn to cast that care over on him too. I doubt very seriously if I've hit the end of my opportunities to be tempted to worry. But everything, every situation that comes along, every subject, every area that, that rises up, you can do the same thing, even if it's difficult, even if it's something that seems bigger than anything you've ever done before, you can be carefree. And it's the only way the word will work for you. The stony ground... Became unfruitful because of the cares of this world. Along with the deceitfulness of riches and lust of other things. Those are distractions. Distractions for finances or other things. But worry is just simply that. It's just worry. Just simply worry. 
I found that some of those same things that I started off being worried about, I can enjoy life in the middle of. The same thing that I was worried about, having made a mistake with the church, having experienced severe, serious financial hardship, I found out that you can have a party in the middle of that. One of those years that we were having such a tough time with the construction stuff and the lawsuits and, and so forth, the Lord really put on my heart, at least I believed he did, still do, the Lord put it on my heart not to take a salary. Now, we never miss paying anybody else's salary. But I went a whole year in the middle of that thing without taking a salary. Somehow or another, God made us through. Was it fun? Not to begin with, but by the end of the year, it was. By the end of the year, it was a blast. Because I'm looking at it and saying, wow, who would have thought you could make it like this? Because, see, that was one of the things that the devil threatened me with. You're not going to make it. Your family's going to go hungry. Well, you can see I haven't missed too many meals. The ones that I did miss, I caught up. I find it's real easy to double up on the ones you miss. And I got to tell you, folks, for me, I, I don't know what it's like for everybody else, but for me, that's where the real joy was. When I found out that you can have joy in the middle of what the devil is threatening you with, because you've become worry-free, carefree. You've cast the whole of it over on the Lord. Is, there's, a, uh, there's a really important lesson that I learned. And that is, trouble only has one handle. Which means either you can hang on to it, or you can let God hang on to it. You can't both share the handle. If you're worrying about it, that means God doesn't have it in his hands. I could tell you story after story after story of people that finally decided that they were going to act on the word. And things, I'm thinking about one guy, one minister friend of mine. He had a lawsuit that had been going on for month after month after month. Threatening everything about his family and his future and his retirement and so forth. This thing just was dragging on and on and on. And finally we talked about where he asked me to, to agree with him in prayer. And I realized there's no point in agreeing because he's worried about it. We had been through some of our financial trouble and with the church and so forth. So I started talking to him, telling him about how God dealt with me about it and so forth, what I had to do for myself because I caught myself worrying. Didn't admit it to myself to begin with, but finally owned up to it and said, yeah, that's right. That's worry. I need to do something about it. I took a position where he would, wouldn't feel condemned about where, what he was doing. And finally, he just acted on it. He said, you know, you're right. We need to do that. Just let, let's just do that. We'll, we'll agree together. We'll cast a care over on the Lord, and then I know I've got some work to do on my own. He told me later that he did it. Took him all night long to get through the thing. Finally, just cast it over on the Lord. He said within three days, he got a call from the lawyer and said the other side dropped their lawsuit. It's all settled. It's all fixed. It's no problem. He'd been agonizing over this thing for months, and if God, once God got it in his hands, he dealt with it in a couple of days. You know, I'm just simple enough to believe that God can do a better job of fixing my problems than I can. I'm pretty good at creating my problems. But I'm just satisfied that God can fix them better than me. So why in the world should I worry about them and keep them in my hands when he could do something about it if I just get it over onto him? Besides that, I refuse to have any area of my life where the word of God is unfruitful. I'm not going to be stony ground. I'm going to be good ground. That brings forth good fruit. Some 30, some 60, and some 100 fold. That means I'm going to have to overcome the cares of this life. The worry about things going on around me. 
Whether it's easy or whether it's not, some things are easier than others. No point in coming to me and saying, well, Pastor Mike, you don't know what I've got to worry about. No, I don't, but God does, and he's the one that said be careful for nothing. That lady I was telling you about that came to Brother Hagin, either pray that I'd get, have the grace of God or the strength of God to carry all these problems or that God would take away half of them. Brother Hagin told her, he said, I can't pray either prayer. Both of them are unscriptural because God said to cast the whole of your care over on him. You know what she said? She said, you're hard. He said, no, lady, I'm not being hard. I'm not the one that wrote the Bible. Jesus did. God's the one that spoke his word. He loves you. He said this so he could answer your, your, your prayer, so he could help you in your situation. She went away. She wouldn't accept God's help. I'm convinced that's the same situation that a lot of Christians are in. David said, I was once young and now I'm old and I've never seen the righteous forsaken or the seed begging bread. God will see you through. There's no point in worrying about it. Now let me close with this. Let me, let me make one or two final comments on this. I think this is more important now than it's ever been in the history of the world. Because the Bible says one of the characteristics of the last days, it talks about it happening in the, in the tribulation, but you could well understand that the events leading up to the tribulation are going to be pretty similar, just not as severe as some of the things that happened during the tribulation period. It says that men's hearts will fail for fear. Well, that's worry, isn't it? Nothing to be afraid of unless you're worried. Unless you know that you don't have any help or or perceive that you don't have any help. For the Christian, it would be a perception in the tribulation. That's real, real world experience. But one of the things that the Bible says, and these are verses of scripture that the Lord's held me to for the last several years. Haggai chapter 2, verse 9, verses 6 through 9. We've been praying a lot in uh, prayer school on Sunday afternoons. But verse 9 is really particularly uh, relevant here. And it says this, it says, The glory of the latter house, meaning the church, shall be greater than of the former, meaning Solomon's temple. You remember how the glory cloud came in and the priest couldn't stand up to minister? It says, The glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former, saith the Lord. And in this place, meaning the church, the latter-day church, the church of the last days, the church that Jesus comes back for, the glorious church that he comes back for, and in this place will I give peace, saith the Lord. Folks, the peace of God is of no value unless you learn to be carefree. And the peace of God is available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year. The peace of God is always available, but it's not going to be realized unless you learn to be worry-free. Unless you learn to cast the whole of your care over on Him. There's some things going on in our world around us that are scary. And it's going to get worse. It'd be nice to think that some politician or some leader is going to stand up and change things and turn things around. The Bible says in the last days men get worse and worse. What's going on now around us is just a prelude. It's the previews of coming attractions. Because it's the work of the devil in the earth. Now that's nothing to be afraid of. Because we've got a God, we serve a God that's more than enough. But I believe, for me, the issue of being worry-free is really dealing with the situation, the question that God asked Abraham in the Old Testament, is anything too hard for the Lord? You deal with that question concerning your situation or whatever the devil is threatening about your situation. You come up with the response, there is nothing too hard for the Lord, then there's nothing to worry about. 
It's so obvious when I pray for people for their healing. Because when I pray for their healing and they go away talking about their condition, I know that they didn't receive. And I know that it's not just unbelief that's keeping them from it. It's worry that creates the unbelief. I've had to deal with this in my own physical situation here just over the last couple of years. I've never had anything that I believed God for for any period of, that, that went any period of time and didn't get an answer. Well, the devil starts beating you up over that. Maybe you're doing something wrong. Maybe you're living wrong. Maybe you're doing this, that, and the other. Well, I know I'm not living wrong. I'm there when I'm living. But the devil will tell you all kinds of things. Maybe it's unforgiveness. Maybe it's worry. I wasn't worried when he started telling me that, but he made me worry about it, talking about worry. (laughs) Finally, I got to the place where I realized, you know, I am carrying the care of this thing. So I dealt with it just like I had with everything else. I've come to the point where I realize there's nothing that's too hard for God. Time has nothing to do with anything. The word of God is true. And there's such a freedom in that. There's such a freedom in being worry-free. There's such a freedom in knowing that there's nothing that's too hard for the Lord and the physical circumstances don't indicate, one, don't, don't indicate anything one way or another. It doesn't mean that something's working. It doesn't mean something's not working. I'm not tr- trusting in the doctor's report whether he says I'm better or whether he says I'm worse. I'm trusting in the Word of God that can't fail. And if we put our trust in the Word of God, what does it matter what things look like? Brother Hagin rarely tells this part or rarely told this part of his story. But when he finally saw that his problem was he was trying to see an answer before he believed in the answer in Mark 11, 23 and 24. When he finally came to that realization, he said, I see it. I see what I've got to do. I've got to believe for my healing now while I've still got the deformed heart, still got the blood disease, still got the paralysis. I've got to believe that I receive my healing now before I see the answer. So he just declared. He said, I declare before heaven, earth, and whatever evil spirits might be here. That I am healed from a deformed heart. I'm healed from a blood disease. I'm healed from the paralysis. I'm healed. In case I've missed anything, I'm healed from the top of my head to the soles of my feet. This is the part that he rarely told. Then he said, Lord, if I'm laying here 50 years from now, I'll still be declaring that I'm healed by the stripes of Jesus. See, folks, when you settle it once and for all, time doesn't matter. Time doesn't matter. Be careful for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. You get rid of worry, and then you're in a position to pray. Really pray. How do you do it? Casting the whole of your care on Him. All of your anxieties, all of your worries, all of your concerns on Him once and for all. For He careth about you watchfully and for you, about you. For you affectionately and about you watchfully. I think that's how it says in the Amplified. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you that you're greater than anything that comes against us. You're greater than any work of the devil. Thank you, Father, that there's more power in your word to take care of any and everything that we face than anything in the universe. The most powerful thing in the universe is your word. Father, we refuse to worry. We realize it's not going to be just one prayer here this this evening. That some of us have got situations where we're going to have to take your word and soak in your word and meditate in your word and confess your word so that we really turn loose of the cares and the concerns that we have. But Father, 
we lay the foundation for it tonight. We declare that because of the work of Jesus to deliver us and to set us free, that we will refuse every opportunity to worry. We choose to cast our cares over on you, Lord, once and for all. We thank you that you watch over us. We thank you that you love us. We thank you that you make it a way for us to live free from worry. And we declare, Father, that we're redeemed from the curse of the law. Therefore, we're redeemed from the curse of sickness. We're redeemed from the curse of poverty. Everything we put our hand to prospers, Lord. You're seeing us through in every area of our lives. So we refuse to worry. Greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. So what have we to worry about? Paul said, since God is for us, who can be against us? What have we to worry about? Thank you, Father. We declare by faith that we're worry-free. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Go do whatever you have to do to cast your care over in the Lord, but do it once and for all and be done with it and live worry-free. Amen?